Thank you for the invitation to be back at Riverside, and my wife and I both have uh, thoroughly enjoyed the time and the fellowship before and after church, and I just thank you for your kindness and hospitality. We've, we've been blessed by being here, and I've been looking forward to this uh, passage tonight. So you've got your Bibles open, surely, to the book of Judges and chapter number 7. The book of Judges and chapter number 7. So before we read our text, we just kind of recall that the Israelites have been in the land of Canaan, we can't say for sure, somewhere around a couple of hundred years uh, since Joshua led them in and took seven years to conquer and divide the land. So they're pretty settled in there. The last seven years, the Israelites have been under great oppression. That's what we found out in chapter number one of, I mean, uh, chapter number six, from verse one on about the uh, oppression of the Midianites and left them impoverished. After seven years, they cried out to the Lord. And when they cried out to the Lord, uh, the Lord in mercy heard their cry and uh, so the Lord went to work and called a man by the name of Gideon, a farm boy there at the wine press where he was thrashing wheat. Wine press, thrash wheat. I still can't get over that. They just don't go together. But nonetheless, that was a result of, you know, we talk about all the weird things that happened with the pandemic. Well, they had a lot of weird things going on because of the oppression of the Midianites and the Amalekites and their alliance that they had there. And so the Lord called Gideon and said that he was going to use him and uh, that he was going to use him to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. And Gideon just couldn't comprehend that and, uh, you know, never imagined he would be in that place. And, and so he said, Lord, I've, I've got to know this is you. I need a sign. So God gave him a sign, gave him another sign, gave him another sign uh, that he didn't even ask for. And so he kept giving his, uh, what shall I say, his, um, I'm trying to think of the word that has to be, he's a beginner, uh, this servant of God, he, this, this is going to be a whole, whole, whole new life and role for him. So God assures him and brings him along. Finally, we saw that uh, Gideon blew the trumpet, the Spirit of the Lord came on him, he blew a trumpet, and he assembled an army of, uh, well, at least a gathering of 32,000 men that came to him from Manasseh and those northern Naphtali, Zebulon, those northern uh, tribes there, uh, hun uh, or rather 32,000 men. Now, we remember that the problem with that is 32,000 men, of course, is great, except they're facing an army of the Midianites and Am Amalekite alliance of 135,000 men. And so that's when God uh, gives Gideon that final sign. And uh, then uh, we talked uh, last night. Oh, we also talked about the fact that uh, they took care of the Baal worship that was going on. And they built an altar to the Lord. And so what all was involved there. So actually tonight we're ready to get down to the action. It's time, it's time for the conflict. So we look in verse number 15 of chapter 7. It said, It was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream, that was the last sign 
uh, or indication that God gave him, uh, giving him assurance, a dream that, a, that one of the Midianites had that he overheard and in the interpretation of it. And so it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof that he worshiped and returned into the host of Israel. It's not an insignificant thing there that when he heard the interpretation of it, he knew this was God and he worshiped God. We could spend a long time right there. And he, he came, uh, humbled himself and acknowledged God in this. Knew he wasn't on his own. This isn't a bunch of unusual circumstances just coming together, right? No, no, no. This is God at work. And he worshiped the Lord, returned to the host of Israel. That is the man that he had assembled together, which now has been reduced from 32,000 to somebody help me, please. 300. <laughs> you hardly call that an army. 300. And so... After he worshiped, he returned to the host of Israel, the 300, and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. God really got through to him on that uh, last sign that he had, or that vision and the interpretation of it. So he goes and tells these 300 men facing 135,000 man army, he says to them, Up! Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. He didn't say, let's go see what happens. <laughs> that isn't where he was. No, he knew God was at work. He's growing in the Lord himself. You can feel it as you go along. And he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. I'm sure that this must have been a specially devised and manufactured thing for warfare for night uh, purposes, like they're going to use it right here. And so I don't know how to describe those pictures and, and uh, the lamps inside of them. I just know what it says and how the story goes. So look at verse 17. And he said unto them, look on me. Now he's got them divided into three parts. He said, look on, uh, look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all that are with me, so apparently he had a hundred men with him, uh, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of all the camp. And say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. And they had but newly set the watch. So it's midnight. And they blew the trumpets and break the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and break the pitchers and held the lamps in their hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow with all. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his own place round about the camp. And all the host of the Midianites, Amalekites, their alliance, all the host ran and cried and fled and the 300 men blew the trumpets 
And the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Bethshittah and Zerarath, in Zerath, and to the border of Abel Mechola, uh, unto Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali, and out of Asher, and out of all Manasseh, and pursued after the Midianites. And you'll see that they were after two kings and leaders, uh, princes of the Midianites, and we'll say a little bit more about that a little bit later on. So let's have a word of prayer, and you can be seated, and we'll get right down to work here. Father, we are thankful tonight again for the blessings of these days that we've had together in the Word. And we are thankful, dear God, that while we are reading a uh, an account that has been used in many children's books and children's stories and, and uh, what some uh, used to call the bedtime stories out of the Bible and such as that, we understand, oh God, that there's far more here than a neat little story for children to hear. It's good for children to hear it and to be introduced to it. It certainly is profitable also to look into it and see uh, that it is recorded, not for history's sake uh, alone, but so that you might speak to us about ourselves. You're not speaking to us about Gideon of long ago. That record is settled so long ago. You're speaking to us about ourselves, and we find that in the account and in this account. So I pray that you would help us and help us to benefit and profit. And I say once again, not just out of habit, but I pray that you would work in every life individually, and when that happens, then it can affect the body collectively, and I pray, O oh Lord, that it might be a benefit not just to a man or family's life and their home or uh, to a person here and there. I pray that this would be a profit to Riverside Baptist Church, your church, God. I pray you would bless, and we'll thank you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. <clears throat> Last night we were talking about the <clears throat> fact that um, the Lord had Gideon take the 32,000 men that had assembled at the blowing of the trumpet <clears throat> and had come together to him in that certain place and how the Lord said, that's too many for me. And so uh, Gideon had the responsibility to follow the orders of the Lord and reduce the number uh, to the desirable uh, number. Not desirable to Gideon, not desirable to the other men, but desirable to whom? Desirable to God. It's too many for me, he said. So he started by saying, I want everybody that's fearful, afraid to go to the battle, go home. 22,000 men unashamedly admitted to their cowardice and went home. And that left 10,000 men. <clears throat> Gideon, no doubt, about ready to go with them. The Lord said, no, no, it's not time yet. It's still too many. And remember that we said the idea was not just to be liberated uh, from the oppression of the Midianites, the big idea was that they would return to God. And that was the objective, that was God's objective, that they might return to him. And for 
them to go out there with 32,000, even 10,000 men, and take on the Midianites, God knew that they would vaunt themselves against him. In other words, they'd be pounding their own chest instead of giving God the glory. Is everybody with me here on that? We can just make that real simple. And that's what it was. And so they had no ability within themselves to deal with a 135,000-man army. They didn't have any ability to do that when they had 32,000 men, let alone 10,000. And now it's reduced down to 300 because he not only had the ones that were afraid sent home, lest it be contagious and spread among them, and everybody's afraid. He also said, let's look at those that don't understand discipline. You're going to see in this account tonight that it's going to require a good amount of self-discipline. And so if you take a bunch of men that are not self-disciplined, and they don't understand what it is to have control or temperance or that control over their own flesh and over their own selves. If they don't have that, they're going to really mess up what God's going to do here. And so God says, I I want you to take... So they took him to the water, and here are 9,700 men that didn't have the discipline uh, to be cautious and careful. All they could think about was their appetite for water, And so they indulged and gorged themselves, apparently, the way they went about it, in their desire for water. Well, there were 300 men that were very, very cautious. And they were disciplined enough to know that we are never out of danger with these Midianites the way they've been the past seven years. And so what they did is they went down to the water and they cupped the water and they lapped it like dogs. And that way, all the while, they could keep their head up not down and make them vulnerable. All the while, they could be aware of their surroundings and what might happen or what might be going on there. And God said, get in. Do you notice this? Take these men right here. So there are 300 men. And I said last night, not apologizing for saying it again, by the time we come to 300 men against 135,000, humanly speaking, is everybody with me here? From the standpoint of man, it's absurd to think that they should expect a victory. I said just from the human standpoint. But God has shown himself to be God already to Gideon, and it must be that this faith that Gideon has uh, grown in is being passed on to some others, and God is definitely at work. So you got these 300 men that are assembled together. And when I said that it is absurd what they are asked to do from the human standpoint... I want to just refresh your mind too. It is also absurd to think that you or that I could live a Christ-like or holy life in this wicked world, in this body of flesh. Because our flesh doesn't thirst for God. It doesn't. Our flesh There is that about the flesh where the Apostle Paul said that the spirit and the flesh are at odds. They are at conflict with one another. There's a warfare that goes on between our flesh and the spirit. What Jesus say? The spirit indeed is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. And uh, all of us have experienced that. Some of you are sitting there looking so incredibly innocent tonight, but I know that you've had to deal with the same kind of, of disappointment in your own flesh that I have. Uh, Peter is not the only one that ever meant to do right and wound up doing wrong and went out and wept bitterly. I said, he's not the only one that's experienced that. 
I've experienced that, and, I, and sincere people that are in this room have experienced that. And so to ask us, for God to ask us, Sam Davison, and put your name there, I want you to be holy as I am holy. Uh, uh, be ye holy, for I am holy. Okay, for me to be holy or godly in this place, in the energy of this place, it's ridiculous to think about. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And then when we talk about a true discipleship life, uh, I love preaching through the Gospels. I love the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that Jesus made very clear, although he didn't say it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, but he did say this uh, to those that would be his disciples, you're going to be my disciple? Then you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Let me ask you something. Is there anything about the world system, or let's just stay right here in our own culture, is there anything about our culture that makes you want to be a self-sacrificing individual? No. We live in a very self-centered society. Somebody say amen or I'll have to stop here and preach about a half an hour. And then that makes me mad too. So we don't want to do that. I mean, let's admit it here that we are in a culture that is extremely self-centered. And that spirit has found its way under the church door in too many places and in too many lives. Where the reason that they have con or that there is conflict. And the reason that there is trouble and the reason that there is strife in a New Testament church instead of being as one and functioning as one is because of the self-centeredness. And yes, I believe in probably every independent Baptist church, no matter how fervent the preaching might be, how biblical it might be, there are those that find their way among the congregation that truly believe it ought to be all about them. See? Sure got quiet. I'm not accusing everybody here. Ben. I'm just saying. It's to be found everywhere. It's to be found everywhere. And the only reason that you and I are not that way if we are not that way is because of a yieldness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, Christ in us. That's the only reason. Otherwise, we would think it's to be about all of us. See? And so to think about uh, living a self, uh, uh, self-depriving life, uh, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, the cross, an instrument of death, the cross, an instrument of shame and repro- reproach. Now look at the so-called Christian world out here. It wants so badly to fit in this world. And if we are distinct and in fact, biblical in our life and our approach, we're a disgrace to the direction and the mentality of this world. See, there was an old preacher years ago when I was involved with a whole bunch of preachers in a, a fellowship across the country and the Bible college and missions work and all of that. And so I was in a place to address this group of preachers quite a bit because of the office and so forth. And so I'd preach and had an old sage of a preacher that called me and said, Sam, and, and he was about probably the age I am right now. So he was an old coot. You know what I mean? And so anyway, he called me up and he said, Sam, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to make your ministry hard and you're never going to reach what you could reach. And I'll tell you why. Because you're preaching, you're out here trying to fight the culture. You're always fighting the culture. You're always fighting the culture. He said, son, you're spitting in the wind. You're going to get nowhere with that. And you got to have preaching or teaching and a ministry that is not fighting the culture. And I said, I have no idea how to do that. If I'm going to be a Bible preacher, I'm going to confront the culture. 
And there's nothing out here in our culture that makes me think that the church or the Bible and culture are kind of on parallel paths going the same direction. We are not going the same direction. And if we're going to be faithful to the Word of God, then we are going to confront the culture. And they collide. They don't run parallel. They collide. Boy, is the collision becoming ever more evident and vicious. It absolutely is. So to think about that, without Jesus, it's absurd. (laughs) It's not going to happen. Same way with the responsibility of a New Testament church. To be a lighthouse in this area, in your Jerusalem, and in Judea, church planting all around, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth, and to preach the gospel to every creature, going into all the world. No, in order to do that, I mean, look at this massive population. I don't even know how to think about 8 billion people, do you? I mean, I can remember the time when they said there are actually now in the United States of America 225 million people. I can remember the time when they said now there are 250 million people in the United States of America. Next thing you know, it's 300 million people. Now they say it's 330 million people in the United States of America. And so we're this little nation here in a world of a billion, uh, 8 billion people. I don't even know how to comprehend that. Beyond my comprehension. And yet what Jesus said, Jesus says. It's the responsibility of whom? The universal invisible church? Heavens no. Please, if, if you're listening to that stuff on the radio, why don't you just turn it off and go read your Bible? You'll never come to those kind of ridiculous conclusions by following the Word of God. No, it's the responsibility of what Jesus established to carry out His work, what He commissioned to carry out His work, and as a matter of fact, I might point out that the last ones that ever heard a message from Jesus on this earth were his churches. And when you get in the book of the Revelation, you'll no doubt deal with those seven churches of Asia Minor, which were not only seven literal churches that existed at that particular time in a sort of a circle, not an even circle, but in a sort of a circle in Asia Minor, and are representatives of the churches throughout this whole age. See, and so it's the work of the church. The work of the church to do what? To do the work of the gospel. The work of the church to do what? To spread the gospel, to send missionaries, to make sure that missionaries are going here and there. And somebody said, we're losing ground. Right, that's why we need to have meetings like this and missions conferences and times when we get together. And remember, we don't exist here so that we can have Christian fellowship with people and have a Christian Baptist social club. That's not why we exist. So that your kids will have a good place to have some good, clean fun. That's not why a church exists. What are you looking for in a church? I'm looking for a church that will fit my family's needs. Uh, And because we have children this age and this age, and we really want a good active program for them. What do you mean a program? Uh, Soul winning, how to live, how to be pure, how to be godly, how to be distinct, how to be separate. No, I mean, you know, like cleaning sports and stuff like that. Last thing this world needs is another sports venue. That goes over big every time I say it, but I can't help it. This, this, this world is not in need of churches having good... Oh, I know churches that have used a lot of sports programs to reach people. I'm Okay, I'm glad for everybody gets saved. But you didn't develop that sports program by reading the Bible. That means, I got you there. That's what that means. 
and you don't. You don't read that. And I'm not out to fight it. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not out to fight it or anything. I'm just saying that is not the purpose of a church. And, and as a matter of fact, it's quite shocking to people when they hear that actually the church does not really exist for them. What did you just say? I said, the church doesn't really exist for you. You exist for His glory and to serve Him. And you can do that through His agency, which is a new, an authentic New Testament church. See, that's why the church exists. Now, will that benefit you? Oh, my soul, yes. But the primary purpose is not just so you and your family have a comfortable place to have a good time and keep your kids around some good people and all of that. that that's a benefit. I said, hey, that is a wonderful benefit. But let's not forget, Jesus said, or Paul said about Jesus, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, that's why he came. And I don't care. You can say, I don't understand the King James. You can understand that. I said, you can understand that. I'll run it by again then. Some of you are looking at me. I don't know if I understand it. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, somebody says, what in the world does this have to do with Gideon? And if I don't stop and get back to it right now, it won't have anything to do with it. It'll just be, I'll go off on this time. So, but it does have to do with this, and I want to show you that. Now, <clears throat> here they are, 300 strong. And, uh, and we understand what happened. Uh, Gideon gets, to, <laughs> gets these 300 together, and can you imagine the looks in their eyes when Gideon said, all right, now here's the battle plan from God. There's 300 of us and 135,000 of them. And we are on this hill. I could have brought the name of it that they think it is, uh, or kind of a mountain thing, kind of horseshoe shape maybe. And they're to the north of us. That's what the Bible says, down here in this valley. And so we're going to get real close. And we don't have a complete circle around it. But for what the mountain allows, then we're going to have 100 men over here, and we're going to have 100 men over here. And let's say, I'm just imagining, I'll have my 100 men right here. And so you've got all the sides of that camp, except the open area there in this valley. You've got all the sides of the camp there that they're going to put 100 along here and spread out 100 along here and 100 along here. Okay, so how do we invade? Now, don't think about invading just yet. Just listen. Okay, so what's your, what we're going to do, every man is going to take a trumpet. Now, that would be a ram's horn. And he would take a ram's horn in his right hand. Then in his left hand, according to the scripture, he's going to have a pitcher. And in that pitcher is a light, a candle, a burning light of some sort. And so you're going to have that in there. And now you're going to be positioned over here, and uh, I'm going to be positioned here, and you're, you're going to be positioned over there, and you get positioned over there. Everybody get ready. And then you'll know what to do when you look this way where I am, and then what I do, you do. What my hundred men and I do, that's what you do. So what are we going to do? Well, at the appointed time, we're going to take the ram's horns, 300 
Big, strong, come on, use your imagination. What do you got, a bunch of wimps out here? No, you got some men there. And they're strong-lunged men, and they're going to take that ram's horn, and at the signal of Gideon, they're going to blow it all at the same time. And then after they blow the ram's horn, they're going to take the ram's horn, bust the picture, uh, pitcher with it, and the light will shine. And then you're going to hold the light up there. A hundred here, hundred here, hundred over there. You're going to hold the light right there. And then after the light is exposed, then as loud as you can, we're going to say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they said, then what? He said, I don't know. That's all I got from the Lord. That's all he told me. <laughs> Literally. So there it is. So they go and get in position. Now, we understand that makes no sense. Except for chapter 7 and verse 7, where it says the Lord is going to do this. Come on, you take that that element out of it, it's all insane. This is going to be a big flop. But that's not all there is to it. It is, this is what the Lord is going to do. See, so God is in control, and he said, all you got to do is do what I do. And I mean, this is fairly basic for, and fundamental for Christian living. All you got to do is what I tell you to do, because I'm going to do for you what you haven't even thought of yet. Oh, man, this will preach for a while. I'm just saying, God, this is basic and fundamental to Christian living. God just simply says, Jesus gave us a sermon on the mount and said, you know what? If you'll do what I say to you and you'll pay attention to my words, your life is going to be different than you could even imagine. The storms are going to come. I didn't say they wouldn't, but you'll be like that house that's built on a rock and the storms will have no power over you. Just do what I say. What did, what did Moses have? Uh, what did God have Moses say before they went into the land? Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. Here's what God said. You agreed to do it. Now do it. If you will, you can't even imagine the blessings that are going to run over you from God. And if you don't, you don't want the life you're going to have in disobedience to God. There it is right there. And so, so here's Gideon, and he's got them all lined out. <clears throat> so here, here's what I just kind of, boy, oh boy, use your imagination because they're assembled there. And it's the midnight hour. Now, uh, I take a little liberty here and there. And if you don't like it, you can toss it out. But I think this is probably uh, accurate that down there in this valley at midnight, the, probably the only thing you can hear is snoring. You know, these guys are down there sleeping. Um, well, there are, that's an army. You think they're really down there sleeping? Uh, what has happened in the last seven years that would make them think they're about to get whooped? They've had the Israelites for seven years hiding in the dens and the caves, doing goofy things like threshing wheat down at the wine press. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, there's, they haven't showed a lot of boldness and courage. The only indication they might have had was if that guy that, her, that had the dream and then interpreted the dream that there's going to be a barley cake come rolling in here and knock a tent down means we're going to have the Midianites delivered in the hands. I doubt if that message was delivered. 
to the whole Midianites or to the leaders of the Midianites. I, I don't think there's any indication that message ever got beyond those two guys that, um, uh, that God had speak that for the benefit of whom? His servant Gideon. That was the sole purpose of it. So here they are. They're down there sleeping. It's midnight. And here are the 300 men quietly placed upon this mountain. 100 here, 100 here, 100 here. And at the midnight or shortly thereafter hour, it was a quiet and peaceful night. How do you know? I'm doing the preaching. It was a quiet and peaceful night. It was a full moon. I mean, they could see it was amazing. And so on this quiet, peaceful night, these men are gathered. And down in, the, in this valley are encamped 135,000 men. Imagine the tents. Imagine what they looked like down there. Had to be, well, that's a lot of, it takes a lot of housing for 135,000 men. Yeah. And so it'd be about twice the size of this city, an area, that population, somewhere close to that. So here they are. And then just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Gideon blows the ram's horn. And then you've got 100 men here and 100 men here and 100 men there, as strong as they can, blowing on those ram's horns, those trumpets. And I don't know how it sounded. I've I've tried to imitate it before, and I make a fool out of myself. So just use your own imagination. Imagine how it sounded, some kind of a trumpet blast, like da-da-da-da, or something like that, you know? And so 300 of them, and they're aiming it down there in that valley, and that sound comes sweeping down in that valley among 135,000 sleeping men. Granted, they'd have a guard or two here and there around the place, no doubt. And that sound comes down there, and I can see inside the tents, can't you? Men are saying, what in the world was that? What was going on? They start getting up and they start stumbling over each other. I think they had seven men per tent. I, I, I have no idea. I just made that up. But seven men a tent. And so they, because in there and they're trying to get out the tent door. We got somebody go see what that was. And before they could do it, uh, they hear this kind of clanging sound and those clay pots that held those uh, lamps, uh, they're all broken. They could kind of hear that down there. Come on, the sound carries like that, you know? And, and then they look up and there's 300 lights. There's 100 lights here, and 100 lights there, and 100 lights there. Somebody said, well, 300 lights isn't very many lights. Did you ever notice if you've driven across the plains of Kansas and Oklahoma out there in the wide open places, it doesn't take a town of a lot of lights to look like a lot of lights? And you see a long ways off, you see kind of a glow, and you'll see these lights, and you think, oh, that's a nice looking town here. And when you get there, if you're not careful, you won't even know you went through it except for <laughs> lights here and there. Is everybody with me here? And so here's 100 lights here. But here's the thing that I found interesting is that in their wartime or in their time of mentality about war, that if there is night warfare, that generally every light would represent 300 soldiers behind that light. So think about that. And so if there were 300 men over here, then 300 times 300 is how many? That's a whole bunch, okay? Thank you for your math uh, expertise there. And then you got that many here, and so the Midianites are looking at the lights, and they know by the trumpet blast that this is a military thing going on here. 
And they see these lights, and there are at least 300 times three, uh, there are at least 100 times 300 men over here, and the same here, and the same here. It's still not 135,000, but it's a significant force that they need to pay attention to, and all those lights. And they had no idea that every light represented one man. <laughs> they had no idea about that. And so they looked up at that, and they started scrambling around. And about that time, they hear the men all in unison with strong lungs, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, waving the thing around. See what I mean? That's why I never do that. But, and, and so they're making all this noise and the men of, of yeah, the Midianites are down there coming out of their tents and they're trying to find their sword and they're bumping into each other. And if you can just kind of Imagine this kind of a bowl that's down here in this valley. God, who is God, who said He's going to do this, reaches down. He just stirs things up really bad. And no, He does. Read it. Read the account. God stirs it up. The next thing you know, this Midianite is running into somebody. Well, it's dark. He just woke up. He doesn't know who it is. Is this one of them that's come in and they've already invaded us? I'm not taking any chances. Mm, runs a sword through one of his fellow soldiers. And they stand down there in that valley and kill each other. And somebody said, this is too gory. I think it's beautiful. They're down there. And you can hear the... As another one gets it through the gizzard, you know, and they're just, and they're dead. No, I'm serious. God mixed them all up and they stood there and fought one another until they could finally gather themselves enough to haul off and run. If you want to know what was going on uh, that night, 120,000 men died. 120,000 men. And God did it. God did it. And the ones that could took off running. I mean, you got a couple of swords through you. You're not going anywhere. But the ones that could, they took off running 15,000 strong. You'll read that over in chapter 8. There they go. They're gone. Meanwhile, what are Gideon and his 300 men doing? What does the Bible say? It says, and every man stood in his place. I better make sure I read that right. Let me look here. Yep, that's what it says. Verse 21. No, I said it wrong. They stood every man in his place. So what were these 300 men doing? Standing there. Every man stood in his place. Let me me, uh, make a proposition here. See what you think about this. What if... uh, Ten men here and ten men over in this group, five or eight men over here in this group. Uh, they had guys in there that said, I tell you, I've been waiting for this chance for a long time. Those Midianites are down there killing each other, and they killed my father's livestock. They uh, uh, ravaged our crops. They made us live the kind of miserable life so that we couldn't even enjoy the fruit of our crops and our herds. And I, I, I thought, if I get a chance, I'm going to take me out of Midianite. I'm going to go down there and take out a Midianite. I wonder if that would have affected God's program. Is everybody listening to me? You think there's a reason it says every man stood in his place? Of course there's a reason he said that. They stood every man in his place because this is a part of what would make the operation that God was carrying out here would make it uh, successful and profitable so God could get... And not one of those men got out of place and got in God's way. 
Oh, excuse me, God doing what he was doing with the Midianites didn't have to stop what he was doing with the Midianites to deal with somebody that was a knucklehead and think, I'm going to take this in my own head. I'm going to get me a few heads or put some swords in some of the Midianites myself. I've hated them for the past seven years, hated them before that. But since they made our life miserable, I'm going to go down there and get one of them. Don't think that wouldn't come to a man's mind. But none of them left. Remember the discipline they showed? Remember how they went to the water and did it this way? And they knew what the orders were. So they stood every man in his place. I never served in the military. I had two brothers that were in the army, you know, and uh, such as that. And I've always admired people in the military. I remember as a kid, the Korean War was over, and some of the soldiers of our little hometown, our church, uh, came home. And I remember guys sitting at my uh, parents' table. I was probably six years old, seven years old, 1951, 1952. These soldiers are coming home. They're coming and sitting at our table, three or four of them with my brothers. They're sitting there with those uniforms on, and I don't know if I had or not because I couldn't take my eyes off those guys in those uniforms. And when my brothers went in the Army, both of them, I thought, whoa, look at these guys. Those uniforms, something about them. I'm just telling you something about them. No, this is the 21st century. Well, I didn't live. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when I was a kid. World War II hadn't been gone that long. And then Korea, and they came home from Korea. And I remember sitting there. So I love the military. Um, so I wonder if military people were taught to stand in their place. Is anybody here serving the military? If you did, it wouldn't hurt you to say amen or yes or help me out. Don't sit there and look at me like, no, we did everything we wanted to. <laughs> no, you didn't. You knew you should do what you was told. You knew how to follow orders. Isn't that right? Yeah. Sure, that's the way it is in the military. You follow orders. I think about when uh, Peter went to Jesus and said, after Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, and I'll be killed, and I'll raise again the third day. Peter gets a hold of him and says, oh, no, you won't. I thought, oh, no, no. You don't take someone of that rank. I mean, he is all alone, Jesus is. But you don't, if you went in the military on that, you don't take somebody with rank and say, no, I heard what you said I'm supposed to do, but let me tell you how it's going to be. <laughs> it might infringe upon your freedoms in the military, I'm not sure, or your ability to advance. Isn't that right? Sure. And so here are these men that already showed the discipline when they went down for the water, and now here they are, and this confusion and chaos is taking place down there. And the hand of God is producing it all. And the victory is coming. And every man, and they stood, I should say, is the way it said, they stood every man in his place. <laughs> well, okay, I can see you want me to talk about it more. So how much do you want to talk about it? Well, where do we know what a man's place is? Or a person's place? Well, it looks like he gave some kind of order to the home, didn't he? Uh, yes, he did. <laughs> he did. He, he, he gave some real clear order to the home. Paul, oh, Paul wouldn't be popular in the 21st century not uh, politically correct, not sensitive to the times. And Paul said, uh, God didn't make the man for the woman, but the woman for the man. <laughs> Listen to our society scream and holler about that. It's still the way it is. 
And then Paul wrote and he said, I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. That's what he said. So in the home, uh, it goes like this. God, Jesus, man, woman, then they have children. That's the order. Um, You don't have to go read Paul. You can read Genesis chapter 3. That when Adam and Eve had sinned in the Garden of Eden, he pronounced a curse upon the ground, and he placed a curse upon the serpent, and he placed a curse upon the man, worked by the sweat of his brow, and he placed a curse upon the woman. And not only would she have pain in childbirth, but her desire should be to her husband, and he shall rule over thee. Oh, the Bible doesn't say that. Exactly what it says. So there you have it again. You got God, you got Jesus. Now, generally, if there's a foul up in the marriage and a breakdown, generally it's not God's problem. (laughs) Am I being liberal or what? And there's no problem between God and Jesus. He did only those things that please the Father. Don't make me preach on that. Just say amen. So we understand that. That he always did the Father's will. He didn't do anything that wasn't the Father's will. He, he, I came to do my Father's will. He was all about the Father's will. And generally where there's a problem, it's somewhere between Jesus and the woman. So you got the man there. And so I love preaching. I may have preached at this church, not that I expect you to remember, but about the life of Jacob and his 12 children and the chaos of that family. And Jacob came out of the home of Isaac and Rebekah. And you have Isaac, who was a very, very passive father, even though he was the son of Abraham. He had grown into spiritual passivity in his life. And after 90 plus years of marriage, his wife was still leading him around by the nose. And Isaac was saying, okay, okay, okay. And then Jacob messed up and had wound up with two wives and then four wives and and children by four different women. And there was strife and confusion. And his women said, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Uh, Rachel and, um, and Leah, they said, you're going to sleep here tonight. Uh, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And here's this little submissive weenie of a husband that did everything his wife said. And you read the lives of those children of his, and it was nothing but chaos. You know why? Somebody wasn't in their place. I said, somebody wasn't in their place. Well, if you knew my wife, I don't have to know your wife. God's word didn't say under certain conditions. If she is personality type, whatever. That ain't what he said. Here's a lot of the problem too. There are a lot of women that appear to be unsubmissive and running the home, but actually many of them are acting by default because there's not a man, or they don't have a man that will lead the home. And they watch their husband live apart from the authority of Jesus in his life, while he demands the wife and kids to live under his authority. Is, is this foggy or... Yeah. 
So you have God, Jesus, no issues there, and man. The thing I have to look at in my marriage relationship and with my wife is, does my wife see me living in submission to Jesus? If I'm not, I'm not in my place. And how eager is a woman to say, yes, honey, yes, honey, yes, master. <laughs> I tried to get my wife. You know, I said, Abraham, Sarah called Abraham Lord. I think it'd be good if you did that. And she said, you're not Abraham. And I said, well, you're not Sarah. So it all evens out. Why don't you do this? It still doesn't work. But anyway, but, but what if she sees me blatantly, blatantly ignoring the authority of the headship of Jesus in my life? You think it gives her an appetite to be a submissive wife? And the kids may not know how to identify it, but they can feel it. They don't even know how to articulate it, but some ain't right here. And therefore, when the children are coming under discipline, there seems to be, what is this rebellion about from these kids? Well, they watch dad rebel against God. They watch the mom rebel against her husband and, and maybe the Lord too. And, and then they're being told to do this and do that. And there's just something that ain't right in the whole spirit of the thing. And there's rebellion there. You, we could talk about the home quite a while on that. So, sir, do you know, as a husband, do you know what your place is? It's under the authority of Jesus Christ. Are you there? And ma'am, do you know where your authority is? Well, I'm a 21st century person, and I have a career as well as my husband, and I have probably more gifts than he does. Oh, get away. Here's a straight-A woman over here. You think I ever, son... <laughs> When I got an A, it was reason for a party, and that was an FFA, you know. So uh, it, 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 we're not talking about the abilities and the gifts of one over another. We're talking about God's order of things. And if we don't stand in our place, then we expect things to be sweet, good, productive, fruitful, joyous, happy. What it is, it's a foot in the door for the adversary. That's what it is. So that's one area you could talk about it. I suppose you could bring it into church life too. Well, does God really have an order in church? Or is it, isn't it sort of, uh, didn't I read in the Bible where they did every man which was right in their own eyes? Yeah, but you ought to read that more carefully because it's really not a good thing. And that's what happened in the times of the judges. But what about church life? People aren't much interested in hearing about authority at all in our culture and society. So when you take the Word of God and you start talking about God's order of authority in a New Testament church, there are people that rebel against it and say, well, some of the great churches I've heard about and some of the great, you know, one of my favorite TV and radio preachers and author, I mean, they have a board of elders and no, no was, I mean, it's just a whole, whole board that's there. Well, that's a great idea. Except it's not what the Bible teaches. If you're running a business, that's fine. A church isn't a corporation. A church isn't a business. A church isn't for profit. And and I've pastored for 36 years, and a guy said, "Well, brother Sam, I'm a businessman, and I can just tell you this. Well, it's not like there are no 
uh, business principles to apply in handling the finance and the properties and everything of a church. Of course there is. But the big fat difference is this is a ministry and this exists to serve and to glorify God and we are not interested in our shareholders and we're not interested in our customers. We're interested in pleasing God by acting upon His Word. See? So God's got an order. I know where this is going. Wait, you don't like it? You're mad about it? Well, don't you give me dirty looks. I didn't dream this stuff up. Good <laughs> not. Yeah, so you have a pastor. A title is called Elder, Bishop, Pastor. Three types to the same role. Pastor has to do with feeding the flock and caring for the flock. Bishop has to do with overseer. He oversees the affairs of the flock. Elder means to rule among. I don't like the sound of that word. Well, well, that's your problem. But if an elder is to rule, I can just tell you, there, there can be some bad situations develop if a man is given too much authority. Well, if a man doesn't take the authority that God has given and exercise it under God's authority, yes, it'll mess things up. But there's nothing wrong with the structure that God gave. It's when selfish and self-centered people get involved in it and foul it up. See? So just because there are homes that are all out of whack, it doesn't mean that God said, well, let me try something else. Well, he didn't give us anything else. Nor has he for church life. That's right. But here's the wonderful thing about the Bible. It's not all about the pastor. There's also deacons. What's the deacons? Uh, at Southwest Baptist Church, I went to that church, and they kind of had an uh, element of, um, in, in there of the kind that it ought to be a deacon board run church. And that's not what I see in the Word of God at all. And so one of the first things I did as pastor of Southwest Baptist Church following a man that had been there 29 years, the first, one of the first things I did is in a deacon's meeting, I said, all right, uh, let me just uh, clarify something right here. And I was ready and I had my dictionary. I read him the definition of a board. And then I read about the office of the deacon and what appears to me to be in Acts chapter 6, the fulfillment of that role as a deacon. And I said, how does what you see in the Bible fit with what the dictionary says about a board? And a couple of our good men said, it doesn't fit at all, preacher. I said, that's why uh, board is a word we can strike from our church vocabulary. We can just strike that word from our vocabulary. Because we don't have a board. Because the pastor is not over a board. And in fact, there's not a board under him. What's supposed to happen is that there is to be an what's supposed to be is there is a shared burden and concern for the function of a New Testament church that can become bigger than one man can bear, and the deacons are there to bear it up and to assist and to help and to serve. 
And I can't help it. There have been arrogant and haughty pastors that have tried to make subservient uh, people out of deacons and everybody else. I can't help that so. There's not any problem with the plan that God gave. It's when selfish, self-centered people get a hold of it. Well, I know of a church that they did this. So if you follow what the Bible says, and we have actual pastoral authority and leadership and deacons serving and the church following and working and laboring together, that, that's not what you want? Well, that's what you'll get unless somebody is not in their place. I said that's what you'll get. You know, we talked about the uh, massive uh, job. Oh, good night. Okay, but anyway, so, you know, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. And I'd like to think that a New Testament church would be uh, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. And just see a whole congregation in step and moving together. One mind and one accord. That's what the Bible says, where the Holy Ghost, where it's a spirit-filled church, spirit-filled people. That's what you see. One mind, one accord. Everybody's in step and we're all going for the same purpose and <laughs> to accomplish the work of God. But here's how most churches are functioning. Onward Christians hobbling from the war. Going about that pace. It's amazing at 77 how little I have to pretend to do that anymore. But anyway, that's, that's picture that. Here's a body. It's a New Testament church. It's a body. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12. It's not an organization. It's an organism. It's a body. And how do you want your church to do? You want it to... But it won't unless you are in your place. Yeah, well, I don't know. There's some, things I, there's some things I see at the church. I just don't know if I agree with that or not. Okay, so do you know your place? Did God really give you the gift of evaluation? The gift of critique. Did he? We had a doctor in the church at Stillwater, and he was there several years, you know, and and he was a project, but he was also a, a blessing. And then he left our church and, uh, in not such a very good fashion and uh, all upset. It's so silly, I'm not even going to take the time to do it. And then he went and joined another church, and the next thing you know, I heard that he was in another church. And four years later, five years later, I met a businessman on the street, and he and I were talking. He'd never been to our church, but he was a friend, and I'd done some business with him. And, and so um, I, I said, uh, he said to me, say, did Dr. So-and-so, was he a member of Bible Baptist Church? I said, yeah, he was here four or five years, something like that. And he said, yeah. He said, I'm telling you, that man is a good Christian. He has one of the most unique abilities I've ever seen. I said, really? What is that? Maybe I missed it, I'm thinking to myself. He said, what is that? He said, he'll go join a church. He can tell what the problems are, the things that ought to be different. He'll tell the pastor, and then he'll go join another church and do that again. And I thought, oh, wow, is that what he's doing these days? Yeah, I can tell you a whole bunch of churches he's been in. And I said, have you ever talked to all those pastors about that? No, but he told me that's what he's been doing, trying to help churches. <laughs> wow. 
the gift of critique and criticize. Do you know your place? The Spirit adds to the church. The Holy Spirit is the superintendent of church life. There's a place for you. You're to contribute to the welfare of the body. My members are to contribute to the welfare of the body. Amen? Yes or no? My, the members of your body are contribute to the welfare of your whole body. If you're a member of this church, then you are in a living organism called the test, uh, New Testament, uh, a Christian New Testament church. You are in a New Testament church. Uh, it's called Jesus' body, and you are in that body to contribute to the welfare of the whole. But you won't if you're not in your place. Where do you think a member's place ought to be on Sunday night? I know you're here on Wednesday night. I, I get it. But you know, it shouldn't be just his job to talk to some men about, you know, I notice your family is not here on Sunday night. If you want to really be a part of the function and life of Riverside Baptist Church of your life to count for Jesus Christ, you know what I'd encourage you to do? You can do this. They'd get mad at a preacher for doing this, but you can be a friend to somebody and take them out to eat or have them to your house and just say, I challenge you to come two straight months to church on Sunday night, and if it hasn't helped your life, then let's talk about it again. You can do that. You, you, you could actually talk to somebody like that. It'd make the body healthier. I said it'd make the body of which you're a part healthier. See, every man's, they stood every man in their place. Not one of them said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. They just stood there. It had to be hard. But they were already proven disciplined. They stood in their place. And the second thing they did, look over in chapter number eight. I've got to do this fast because you held me up here way too long. Look down in chapter eight. We'll do this quickly. In chapter number eight, Gideon came to Jordan in verse four. Now, now God's given them the green light to pursue. And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over. He and the 300 men that were with him, faint yet pursuing them. I've got highlighted in my Bible, faint yet pursuing this came out well because they stood every man in their place and they were faint yet pursuing. Now, what does faint mean? Well, we could do a big word study on that. But basically, in the context of this, the word faint has to do not that they were losing heart, but this operation began at the midnight hour. So how long do you think it had been since they'd had any sleep? And now they're in hot pursuit of the Midianite army. Is anybody here upset with them that they have now come to a certain place and they are weary and they're gasping for air and they're needing a little nourishment and they're needing a little rest? Is anybody upset with them about that? They were faint. And so it means they were losing the energy and such as that. But at that place, there's not the record of one man saying, Gideon, you're a slave driver. I'm not going on. I'm going to stay here and rest. Not one. Not one. 300 out of 300. Faint yet pursuing. Faint yet pursuing. We may live in the tiredest generation that's ever lived. I hear they're thinking about stopping... Uh, stopping uh, daylight savings time because it affects people's rest and people need rest and such as this. And most pastors, and if you're a member of the church and you're a greeter, you've learned not to ask people, hey, how you doing? Tired. Tired. I'm so tired. 
And so you just learn not to ask. You just might want to ask them, how's your garden or something, you know, besides because, I mean, just everybody is so tired and tired. And I've had students come up to me and say, Brother Sam, would you pray for my pastor back home? I said, well, sure. Yeah. What, what's going on? Anything specific? Well, he's just tired. I said, well, good. Brother Sam, good. I said, yeah, if a man's not working hard enough to get tired, he's not worth his salt. He'll be all right. If he's got the sense to pastor a church and he doesn't know to sit down a little bit, catch his breath, I don't know if I'm going to, my prayers will help him. My heart's really not in it anyway. I've been tired for 50 years. <laughs> What's that got to do with anything? And they are faint yet pursuing. I'm not trying to be hard or ugly. I'm just saying there are people that are willing to tire themselves significantly over issues far less mattering than the things of God and serving the Lord and teaching a class and working a bus route and learning how to go soul winning and then go soul winning and do the service of the Lord and avail yourself for the function of a New Testament church. There are people that are more than willing to make themselves exceedingly tired over things that don't matter two seconds after you die. We had some of these kind of guys at Southwest one time, and, and uh, well, you know, no, I didn't make it out for some. No, I haven't visited my class. No, I can't drive a bus. And then every year, this is one of their expeditions, three or four of these young men, they get together, drive on, uh, they, excuse me, they would leave on Friday after work, drive all night Friday after work, or maybe Thursday night after work, take Friday off, drive all night to see the Cubs play at Wrigley Field. Can you imagine somebody putting themselves out to watch the Cubs? But anyway, and so I'm a Cardinal fan. So anyway, <laughs> I thought some Cardinal fans would appreciate that here tonight. So they drove all the way up there to see the Cubs. They'd see the Cubs Friday. They'd see them Saturday. And most often it was a night game. And they would go on Saturday. And then they'd leave Saturday night and hightail it back home and be in church on Sunday. And then like this, say, you know what we did? We went up there, we watched two games, came back, drove all night. Here we are. I, and I'd say, yeah, here you are. <laughs> and now it's my job to try to keep them awake after all of that kind of thing. But you know what? They loved it. They loved it. They wouldn't miss it. They came back, said, man, it takes me a bit about Wednesday to get over this. But I'm telling you, it's really worth it. You know why some people aren't this revival? I know what some of you are thinking. You preach too long. That's why. Well, that's part of it on you. So now you're holding me up right here having to talk about that. So you know why many of you don't come? Well, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I'm just tired. And I have respect for people that get up and early in the morning and such. I work a job. I understand. But I watch my dad with six kids at home. He worked hard. He's a sharecropper. He worked like a dog. And he'd, you know, bad crops. He'd do carpenter work and anything. He'd pick up on a side hauling cattle for people or hauling sand for the county with his truck and just worked and worked and worked. You know when revival came? It never entered our mind. And you know what time a lot of those revivals started in those days? Eight o'clock. And do you think the preachers in the 1950s and 60s were looking at their watch saying, I don't want to keep you too long? They had no intention of shutting her down because it might be getting late. They would preach. We'd go home, go to bed, and get up the next morning, way early in the morning, 
and do the chores and do everything we're supposed to do, go to school, come back, do the chores, go back uh, to the revival. And I don't remember hearing anybody saying anything about it. Well, yeah, but people are just at a fast pace right now. Oh, you bought into the thinking of this world. There are people before us that had none of the luxuries that you and I know, almost none of them, and they worked and they labored with their hands and they toiled and they didn't have the comfortable homes that most of us live in and such as that. And yet when the house of God's doors were open, they were there. And did they ever get weary? Yeah, but thank God they didn't quit pursuing. That's why I had a good church to grow up in. Amen. You getting weary? Keep pursuing. Keep pursuing. I've had teachers come and say, Brother Sam, I don't know, I'm just, I'm going through a time right now. And I've actually said things like this. Well, why don't we get you a substitute, either a helper or somebody to take your class for a couple of months, catch your breath, see how you feel after that. I'm, I'm for working with people like that. And they're working a bus ride and teaching a class and all that kind of stuff. Well, how about we take you off the route for now till you catch your breath? And it, sure. But don't quit. Faint, weary, tired. Nobody's upset with them for being tired. But they did not stop. And then the third thing. I wish I had more time to spend on this. But the third thing is in chapter 8 that they were in pursuit. <laughs> They were in pursuit of the Midianites, and they were after the kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. See, I mean, people with those names, they ought to be done away with. Amen. So they're after the kings of the Midianites, Zeba and Zalmunna. They're in hot pursuit of them. And so Gideon brings his men to Succoth. That's a town of Israel. There are three Succoths in there. But if I tried to identify the one, I don't care which one it was, and you don't care which one it was. So this was one of the Succoths. And so they were at Succoth, and they said to the men of the Succoth, Gideon said, give my men some bread. We're in pursuit of the Midianites, and please give my men some bread. Read this in chapter 8. And the men of Succoth said, well, Gideon, you know, we appreciate you. You're a brave man. You're leading those people. We've heard things that are happening. <laughs> we owe you a lot. But you know, if you... If we help you, and you don't get them, and they come back, it ain't going to be good. So they refused to help. You know what Gideon said? Well, God bless you anyway. Thanks for your time. Nope. That's not what he said. He said, okay. Oh, you know those briars outside of town that your area is famous for? Yeah. He said, well, I'm going to go do what I'm supposed to do, and when I come back through here... I'm going to catch the briars out there, gather some up, and rip your hide up with them. And he got Zeban Zalmunna, came back to Succoth, gathered up the briars, took the city council, and, and shredded them with those briars. See, there are people right now, nobody in here, I'm sure, but there are people that would hear this and they would say, oh, that is so gruesome. Oh, that is so terrible. Why aren't you upset with the people, listen to me, who had people like Gideon fighting for their safety too? I said they're fighting for them too. This wasn't for Gideon personally, as it wasn't just for his geographical area. The Midianites were their enemies too. 
And why isn't somebody upset with them? Because they were too cowardly to take a stand and identify with them. Instead, no, no, we're not going to do it. Now Gideon comes back. You can read all of chapter 8. Gideon comes back. And here's what the Bible says. He taught the men of Succoth. What do you teach them? Next time, get off the fence. Next time, do what you're supposed to do. Next time, all we ask is to help us have a little nourishment so we can go on. This isn't going over very good, but it's the Bible, so I'm just going to keep on. So they went to the next town. It was called Penuel, another city. And Gideon said the same thing. My men are tired and they're weary and they just need some bread. Can you give them some nourishment? I'm after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of the Midianites. And then uh, can you just help us out? No, no. Uh, see, we have a sister city agreement with a Midianite city. And did they really? I don't know. I just made that up. But it was something like this. And so we just feel like that we, I mean, we're for you. We're for you. We appreciate you. We're just not going to help you. Gideon said, oh, you're the one that, this is where that new tower is. Yeah. Now, remember, you got United Way funds and some federal grants, and you built this tower here for the protection of your city. Yep. Yeah, we're right proud of that tower. Well, I'm going to go get Zeb and Zalmunna. You be sure and enjoy your tower while I'm gone because it's coming down when I get back. And he went and got Zeb and Zalmunna, came back and tore the tower down. Now, I know it could be repulsive that I like this story that much, but I'm just saying. What's wrong with these people? They have no courage. They have no fortitude. And they want the benefits of peace. They want the benefits of having their own crops on earth. They want all the benefits. We're not going to even participate in helping somebody. And so here's the point that they went on. Zeba and Zalmunna were found. Gideon and his men did the job. He came back having succeeded in that area. Watch this. When there was unconcern and indifference from others, it didn't change their approach a bit. They continued on with what they were supposed to do in spite of the indifference of others. Now, we, uh, Sandra was a wonderful bus worker. So we did bus ministry for years and years. And you know what I found from most bus workers? That they just would have appreciated if they had some help. Uh, if, if they just knew that the church... If somebody just come up and say, appreciate what you're doing, and, and I, well, I'll pray for you. Now, they're going to go work their bus route if nobody says anything. Now, I used to say to the members of the church, I, I beg you, I beg you. I'm not asking you to take a bus route, but go ride a bus. Go ride a bus one or two Sundays and just go out with the worker and, and go out with them on Saturday if you would, if you'd take time to do that one time and just go out there, at least teach you how to pray for them and see what they're going through and just look in the eyes of some of these boys and girls that aren't being reached now because, well, since COVID, you know, people don't really want their kids. And besides that, it's hard to get workers now. And I just think of the thousands of boys and girls that have come in through bus ministries and how many missionaries that you and I both know that are on the field that got saved through bus ministries. And now bus ministries are being shut down because we don't have workers. But there are those that are still working. Yeah. 
You can go to Southwest. I don't know if all of the buses are running again, but I'm telling you, many of those that were on the bus route are right back on the bus route. And if everybody would come and help, it would be such a blessing. If nobody does, they're still going to go work their bus route. Well, I don't know. Just not everybody seems enthused. So what are you going to do, back off because of them? What does that say about a man's devotion to Jesus? You've let me down, so I'm not going to follow Jesus. What? How, do you, how does that figure? I know a man by the name, I know a man that had a wife by the name of Sandy that left him after 50 plus years of marriage. So I'm going to go tell my wife, I ain't staying married to you. Because that man's wife's name was Sandy. They were married about the same length of us, and she left him. I can't submit myself to that. I'm done with our marriage. Somebody said that's the most idiotic thing I've ever heard of, and it is. Isn't it? But there are people that do Jesus that way all the time. Why aren't you following Jesus? Where's that passion for Christ? Where's that desire to serve the Lord? Where's that desire to bring somebody to Christ? Where is that passion for Jesus, your Savior? Well, they, they, what did they have to do with it? Did Jesus fail you? Did He lie to you? Did He let you down? I submit He did not. Then what does their failure have to do with your devotion to Jesus Christ? And really, is your devotion to Jesus dependent upon somebody else's support? No. Well, anyway, here we are still talking about this because they stood every man in their place. When faint, kept pursuing. When others were indifferent, they continued on with the task. Lord, I've probably taken too long tonight. And yet, it could be that someone is in this room that knows I'm not in my place. I haven't been for a while. There are people in this room certainly intelligent enough to know they could be in church every service and still not be in their place. Maybe there are some that just need to say, Oh, Lord, I can remember the days where I gave myself to your service and your work. I can remember some of the happiest times of my life when I was committed, when I was serving in the church and helping in the work of reaching people, teaching boys and girls, knocking on doors, trying to bring some parents in here of some of these bus kids, and on and on. Some of the greatest days of my life. And some could be, I don't know, but could be in this room right now that that was then, not now. out of place. As a bird that wandereth from her nest, Solomon said, so is the man that wandereth from his place. Or maybe it has to do with home life. Maybe church life. You know. Faint. Who doesn't get weary? Who is active that doesn't experience weariness? yet pursuing. Is someone here tonight, oh God, that needs to get back in the pursuit? Needs to pick up the ram's horn again?
Did, did somebody quit because they were discouraged by the indifference or the lack of support or encouragement from somebody else or someone else? And we're, we're, we're talking about an incredible, monumental victory that came from your hand, O oh God, but just because you did it didn't mean that your people didn't have a responsibility to stand in their place and to not be weary to the point of not pursuing and did not let others' attitude discourage them from what you have them to do. So you got the victory. There's no doubt about that. That victory was because of you, O oh God. But you put upon your servants responsibilities. And they had a responsibility to be in their place. And they had a responsibility to pursue. That would be pursue the purpose of a New Testament church and why it exists. The purpose of you saving our lives and leaving us here. And the attitude of others, if it's good, wonderful, wonderful. It creates what they call synergy. We're going to do more together than we can do alone. But if they are in fact discouraging, it has nothing to do with whether we go on. So would you bless this invitation for Jesus' sake? Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?